But I entitled part three of today, Who Would Have Thought the Glory of the Gentiles? And I wanted to begin with two quotes on the top of your page in your handout. The first one's by Madeline Lengel, and she said this. She said, if you are going to care about the fall of the sparrow, you can't pick and choose who's going to be the sparrow. Now, that is a very poetic way of saying, listen, we love who Jesus loves. You don't get to pick and choose which ones you get to love. You don't get to allow certain barriers to remain in your life and say, those people I will not love because God has already torn those barriers down. In a bit of a funnier way, in a wittier way, G.K. Chesterton said this. He said, the Bible tells us to love our neighbors and it tells us to love our enemies, probably because they're generally the same people. All right. Now we all understand what that's a little bit about. So you need to think in your mind, who are the people right now that I'm not really excited about seeing in heaven? And that's probably who God's tapping you on the shoulder about. And that's exactly what occurred in the message that you're about to hear today. Now, I would like you to turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter three, verse one. It's page uh, 828 in the Bibles that were handed to you. 828 Ephesians chapter 3 verse 1 I want you to open that up and lay that on your lap because we got some material to go over first There is no way you're ever going to understand The impact of the passage that we're about to read without a history lesson Now for some of you that have been attending here and you attend here regularly You're probably getting sick and tired of my little history lessons. I get that. I'm telling them all the time I'm doing that for two reasons one I want you to memorize some snippets of the Bible. I want you to know how to recount. If someone says, well, tell me what's in the Bible. I want you to be able to hit the highlights from Genesis through Revelation. So I'm going to keep telling you history lesson after history lesson after history lesson because I'm trying to get it to become second nature to you. That's reason one. The second reason is because sometimes we get locked up in the minutia of Scripture and we don't see the big picture. And if you don't see the big picture then you'll have a tendency to not to understand the chapter or the book. And if you don't understand the chapter or the book, you're going to misread your verse. For proper biblical interpretation, you've got to understand context. Well, that's what I'm trying to do, is give you context with every history lesson that I give you. So let's do the history of redemption. You go all the way back, and why did God create mankind? Well... He created mankind to have community with them, to have relationship with them, to love them and pour into them and have them love him in response. And everything was going fantastic. There was no need for a plan of redemption in the Garden of Eden. There was no sin. There was no problem. But then man said no to God. And from the moment they ate of the fruit, we spiraled into chaos in our sin. And the redemption plan, phase one, went into effect immediately. If you read the first couple chapters of Genesis, you see that God, almost like a theocracy of the earth where God was king, he would sporadically speak to individuals or move in certain situations like Noah's flood or the Tower of Babel. But then right a couple chapters in from that, you hit one individual that begins to laser focus the redemption plan and his name was Abram. Most of you guys know who Abram was. His name was changed later to what? Abraham. It went from father to father of many. Now this man was pulled out and God said to him something very specific. It's called the Abrahamic covenant. He said, 
I will make you into a great nation, a great people. I will bless you. I will be your God. You will be my people. However, there's a little phrase tagged on at the end that I don't know if Abraham paid attention to. If Abraham was anything like me, then he was probably totally focused on himself and completely missed the whole other outreach part of this. The last phrase in that covenant says, and through you, all nations on earth will be blessed. So there was a little hint as to what phase two was going to be about. But still, I don't know how much anybody focused on that. So sure enough, Abraham gets derailed off the plan and back on the plan and off the plan and on the plan. He's trying to sort it out and God's getting him back on the rails. And eventually he locks down this covenant and he says, you need to understand, I'm making you into a special people, my chosen people in the world that will be my primary conduit to all of the earth. Every significant thing I do throughout the world, I will do by hitting it through you first and echoing out into the world. That's pretty significant. Well, sure enough, it comes to his promised lineage and the promised child was who? But Isaac. Things go okay with Isaac, but things almost get totally derailed by Jacob, his son. You guys remember who Jacob was, right? That's the deceiver kid. God had to whack his hip out of socket to get him back in line. And his name was changed. His name was changed to what? Israel. Now you begin to see a nation beginning to develop. Jacob had 12 sons and through some little adjustments as to whose territory it was, there were 12 tribes of Israel. He began to make them into a people group. It began to get more and more and more. One of those sons was a man by the name of Joseph. Now Joseph had a horrible life. Y'all remember his story? It's totally miserable. He's in jail half the time, keeps getting blamed for stuff he didn't do eventually gets moved to Egypt and you kind of go, well, what a waste. Ah, no, he became a deliverer of the Jewish people, right? Because all of a sudden the Jews were in a famine. Their family line was going to die out, but Joseph had been placed somewhere as a deliverer that they could go and seek refuge. As a matter of fact, it was so abundant. It was so incredible what God had provided for them. They began to multiply in mass numbers, so much so that the Egyptian empire completely got scared out of their wits and they began to lock down and clamp down on the Jewish people and they put them into bondage and they were in bondage for hundreds of years. Then it was time for another deliverer to show up and his name was Moses. Moses comes on the scene and almost as if God didn't care about anybody else in the world but the Jews, God began to change nature. He did miraculous plagues. He did the parting of the Red Sea. And through Moses, God showed how much he loved his people and how much these chosen people meant to him. And he got them out of Egypt and took them on a 40-year journey through the wilderness. He gave them the law. He gave them codes that made them separate and distinct. And he said, I want you to be separated out. I want you to know that you are not just here for you. You are here for a purpose. You will be my people. You will be my salt. You will be my light. And he put them eventually into a very strategic place. Through Moses' aid, Joshua, they led a campaign into the promised land. And it was fight, 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 try to get everybody out, try to get everything organized. By the way, if you trace through the Jewish history, you're going to see pretty much the story of every new believer you've ever met. Starts out, God does a bunch of stuff. You're amazed at who God is. And then you all of a sudden have to fight a bunch of sin battles. You eventually get tired and you want to give up. And then God sweeps in you fall in love with him and then out of love with him. It, you understand? I mean, it's no different than us, right? 
So sure enough, they're in the promised land. Now they are in a strategic location. The superpowers of the world are on either side of them. The Mesopotamian region, the Egyptian region, and they would battle back and forth. Is Israel still in the heart of everything? Yeah, come on. If Ireland, Northern Ireland fights against Southern Ireland, do we bat an eyelash? Nope, don't care. If something goes wrong in Israel, what happens? It's front page news. They've always been in the very center of all major activity on earth. Why? It's very specific. God puts his little tiny nation right in the middle of everything. Why? Because they are his beacon that constantly echo out that God is real. So sure enough, things begin to spiral out of, uh, into chaos with them. After it looks like everything's going to go really well and everything's going to go fine, they go into the judges period. Do you remember reading anything about that when we studied that as a church? This is a constant cycle. Totally go into sin because everything's going great. Cry out to God. He delivers you. Get back into your sin. Get into bondage. Cry out to God. He frees you. Go back into your sin. I mean, it was just cycle, cycle over and over and over. Eventually, they had to laser focus into a king and the monarchy period began. And that's where we get kings, David. King Saul, King Solomon. You remember that? And God renews the covenant through David. And he says, I want you to understand that you Jewish people are not just my chosen kids for nothing. But I have a purpose through you. And it is through your people that I will send the Messiah. That's pretty extraordinary. Understand this. God may be dealing generally with the rest of the world, but the Jews have the corner market on the massive activity of God. If you want to know anything about creator God, you better go talk to a Jew. If you want to know anything about the God who made you, you better go talk to a rabbi. If you want to know anything about what God is doing on earth, you better get engaged with the Jews. If you want to be close to God, you better be a convert to Judaism because they are the hub of everything going on. Well, sure enough, it looks like things are going to go pretty well and they're going to start doing what they were asked to do. And then Solomon completely chokes. You guys remember that? Solomon chokes, splits the nation into two. They go into a civil war and it becomes north and south. And from that point on, prophets are everywhere trying to get people back on track. You guys, we're completely ruining what God asked us to do. We're not doing it. Let's get our hearts back engaged so we can start being the people God designed us to be. And what did they do to the prophets? They shut them all down and killed them. And God said, really? You don't want to hear anything, do you? Everything goes silent for 400 years. Now, that's pretty dramatic. It's called the time between the Testaments. When you read Old Testament, it shuts down. New Testament doesn't start up yet. Silent for 400 years. Then all of a sudden, a Messiah walks in. God himself comes to earth in the person of Jesus Christ. And boy, was he a disappointment. He comes in as a baby. Really? That's what we got? That? You're kidding me, right? Then he comes out and goes, hi, everybody, I'm God. They're like, no, you're not. I remember you as a kid. I know all your brothers and sisters. I know everything going on. And you threw rocks at my car. So no, I don't believe that you're God. You understand? So he comes in and the Jews are like, I'm, I'm having a hard time with this thing. But then he starts doing miracles and thinking, oh, wait a second, wait a second. Hold on. Maybe we judge this guy too fast. Maybe, I don't know. He's got something going here. And he starts casting out demons and doing this extraordinary stuff. He starts preaching in the synagogues. Everyone's going, this guy's brilliant. I don't know what's going on. Maybe we were wrong about this. And all of a sudden they start getting on board all the way to the point when he does this triumphal entry into Jerusalem. You remember that? 
Everyone's throwing down palm fronds and he's riding on a donkey and everyone's singing hallelujah and they're all saying hosanna, glory to God in the highest. They're all excited. And then what? Complete fizzle out. They go, all right, go take over Rome. Come on, buddy. You can do it. You're our Messiah. Go get him. And Jesus is like, I'm going home. Anyway, he turns around and he walks over here. They're like, no, what do you mean you can't go home? No, no, no. We fight the Romans. That's what we're doing. We're trying to be a nation state. You got to fix our problems. You're a genie. I'm rubbing your lamp. Check it out. You're supposed to do something. Whoo. Boy, they didn't like him. All of a sudden he starts doing stuff that irritates him further. As a rabbi, he starts talking to women in public. What in the world are you doing? No, we don't hang out with women. No, there's a big wall for a reason. No, you don't talk to women. Sure enough, he's talking to women all the time. And then all of a sudden, he does what? Starts hanging out with Samaritans. You remember who the Samaritans are? They're half Jews. Jews don't like half Jews. And they're like, you don't walk in Samaria. You don't do ministry in Samaria. You don't help those people out. He said, watch me. Walked right across the barrier. Then he starts hanging out with Gentiles and enough is enough. It's like, really? You're going to go out to total barbarians, all the hairy, freaky people. No way. You are not going out there and talking to these people. And he did just that. What did they do with Jesus? They killed him. Because what a disappointment. He could not be the Messiah they were waiting for because he did not fix their situation. How many of us have given up on our faith because God won't fix your situation the way you want it done? You see, the Bible says that when Jesus came down, he dropped a huge rock in the way of the Jews. It's called a rock of offense. Some Jews clamored over to life and they began to know their coming Yeshua had come. Others just sat there with their arms folded waiting for God to move the rock. And guess what? They're still waiting for God to move the rock. They're waiting for the Messiah to show up the first time. That was a final act, a test of faith on the Jewish people. And that's when Jesus turned to his crew when he came back and he rose from the dead. And he said, guys, phase two is going into effect. We're going worldwide. He began saying things like, go therefore into all nations, baptizing the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit. He began to say, there will be a time when I will come upon you through the Holy Spirit in power and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and where? But into the uttermost parts of the earth. He said, this is no longer about localized. This is no longer about just the Jews. This is about expanding the family of God. And all of a sudden, Pentecost hits. And boom, just like a huge shockwave of a nuclear weapon, it fires out and begins to fire up all these Gentiles and Jews and Samaritans. And everybody starts getting on fire for God. And the gospel begins to spread throughout the earth. And all of a sudden, God picks one point man to laser focus this gift to the Gentiles, and he picks the least likely, the least possible man. He grabs the Hebrew of Hebrews, the Pharisee, the Christian killer, and makes Paul the apostle his point man for the rest of his life. And that's where we pick up Ephesians 3, chapter 1. Would you turn with me there if you haven't already? The fill in the blank in front of you is this. The inclusion of the Gentiles rocked heaven and earth. The inclusion of the Gentiles rocked heaven and earth. Ephesians chapter 3 verse 1 begins like this. 
For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, and goes off on a tangent. Verse 2 through 13 is one enormous tangent and doesn't get back to his point until verse 14. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for opening up your word to us today, of allowing us to see the incredible mysteries that for so many years, for millennia, have lied hidden that you begin to reveal through your son, Jesus Christ, who you begin to talk to Paul about and what you begin to say is extraordinary. We ask that our hearts would be soft. We ask that you would engage our minds and capture our imaginations. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. For this reason, meaning everything we've talked about before, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, was he really a prisoner or is that kind of a metaphor? No, he's really a prisoner. (laughs) He actually is imprisoned under the Roman Empire. He's under what's called house arrest. Now, he was in a number of imprisonments, but this one happened to be perhaps the lightest. He had his own apartment. He had his own place to be. He could have friends come and go. He could write letters. The only problem is you're chained to another dude for 24 hours a day. (laughs) That's awkward. So the whole time you got this chain and it's kind of like, yeah, there's my guy. I know we can talk, but he's right here. The whole time you're chained 24 hours a day. If you escape, he dies. Guess what? You're not going anywhere. That's called house arrest. So he's under house arrest, waiting trial under Nero. Nero is one of the most psycho emperors of the Roman Empire. How's that going to go? He doesn't know. So he said, I, Paul, a prisoner. And then he defines who he's a prisoner of. Is he a prisoner of the Roman Empire? What does the Bible say? Prisoner of? Christ Jesus. He says, I don't care who imprisons me. My circumstances don't matter. So if I'm in this prison, this in prison, I love Jesus. He has captured my heart and I am willingly a prisoner of his. Everything else doesn't matter. It's all details. That's an extraordinary identity shift. I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. For the sake of you Gentiles... Was he in jail because of the Gentiles? Yeah, pretty much. Because not only did the Jews hate him for the Christian thing, but they really hated him for the Gentile thing. Even the Christian Jews or the Messianic Jews had a real hard time with the Gentiles coming in. That was very rough. And I'll explain a little bit why. But then Paul, like every good preacher, goes off on a tangent. And he says this in verse 2. Surely you've heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. Meaning, surely you've heard about the job I've been entrusted with. That word, that word uh, administration is oikonomia in Greek. It means to be trusted as a steward. He said, surely you know about the job, the task that God gave me of God's grace that was given to me for you. I'm a grace dispenser. Does that make sense? I walk around and tell you how much God loves you. That is the mystery made known to me by revelation, meaning God gave it to him directly, as I have already written briefly. In reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to men in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. What's this mystery? He just said, I'm bringing you brand new revelation information that other people just didn't get. They didn't understand it. And until God revealed it to me, I didn't have a clue. 
So what was the information? Was it that God loved the Gentiles? No. They've always known that. Why? Well, remember, what was the first thing about Abram's covenant with God? And through you, all nations on earth will be blessed. Clearly, God loves everybody. That was not the problem. The Jews knew that God loved the whole world. But in the Jewish mindset, they were cool with God loving everybody else as long as they didn't have to hang out together. They were completely fine with other people getting to heaven as long as there was a nice partition where they didn't have to cohabitate. They were completely cool with God having something going on with everybody else as long as they were still the only chosen children of God. They were fine with all that idea of love in another neighborhood. So what was the mystery? What was the brand new information? Says it right here in your Bible. He said this. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are number one, heirs together with Israel, number two, members together of one body, and number three, sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. That's brand new information. You go, I don't understand. What's the difference? This is when God gathers all the Jews and they go, hey guys, real quick, family meeting, come here. I adopted another kid. You what? I adopted another kid. No, you did not. You didn't ask me. You didn't ask me. We are in this house. We are only children. That's how it goes. No, you don't just bring in another kid. So is he going to live in the garage? No, he's not going to live in the garage. He's going to live in the room right next to you. Why? Because I'm going to love him just as much as I love you. Well, he's not going to play with my toys. Well, yeah, actually he is. You guys are going to share toys. So like... But we can like stamp second class citizen right on his forehead, right? Isn't that what we're going to do? No, we're not doing that. He's one of us. Well, he ain't one of me. No, really, he is one of you. Do you remember last week I explained that the Bible says that it took two entities, the Gentiles and the Jews, and in Christ made a brand new entity. Do you remember that? That word kainos in Greek, brand new of quality, never been made before, created Fused together one new man out of the two. That's how tight it was. That's the mystery. And the Jews went, so, so we're, we're, we're equal? God, that's not fair. You don't get it. See, we've always been your only child. We've always been the ones that got your love. You always said that we were your children. Now you're just going to bring someone in that's going to cheapen our relationship with you. And God says, no, kids, you don't understand. I got plenty of love. It doesn't cheapen anything. You just have a new brother and sister. That's all you got. But that's going to take away time with you. That we're the ones that have suffered all our lives. We're the ones that are persecuted over and over and over. Everybody hates us. Everybody fights with us. Everybody makes a problem with us. And now you just walk out without even asking us and go grab another kid. I'm not doing it. Hmm. Do you understand how dramatic this is? Do you understand what a big deal this is? And sharing this message eventually cost Paul his life. He said in verse 7, I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. That word servant is diakonos in Greek, and it doesn't mean slave. It means servant, like a waiter He said, I willingly became a servant of this 
gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. You know what this tells us? It tells us that if God's going to call you to do something, he's going to empower you to do it. Because Paul said, I got this crazy calling. And the only reason I'm doing it is because God's given me the power to do it. We need to understand that God will always back up what he asked you to do. And Paul's a living example. Then he says in verse 8, although I am less than the least of all God's people, this grace was given to me. Now, is that just like every pastor? Is that false humility to make you like them better? Right? Isn't that what we do? Uh, We pastors always try to get your sympathy by making ourselves a certain way. Is that what he's doing? No. When the majority of your life was spent killing Jesus's kids, you probably don't feel like you deserve to be the point man to the world. Are we all clear on that? I don't think this is false humility at all. I think he's literally going... I'm not the guy. I don't know who you're looking for, but it ain't me. And God goes, no, it's directly you. Absolutely. I will change your name. I will change your identity. And we're going to do this. Because of me, not because of you, Paul. He says, although I am less than the least of all God's people, this grace was given to me. What grace? To preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. That word uh, unsearchable kind of a cool word in greek it means untraceable by footsteps you can't find where it started from the unsearchable riches of christ and to make plain to everyone in the world how this ministry works or the administration of this mystery which for ages past was kept hidden in god who created all things his intent was that now through the church is that not our message to keep giving out are we giving this message about how we're all one body or are we still dividing so that now through the church the manifold wisdom of god and that word manifold means multicolored meaning no matter what you do with god you turn a diamond and it just keeps shining something brilliantly new every time you look at a rainbow you look and you go oh my gosh look at that color oh look at that color oh look at that color every time you look afresh at god it's dramatically new it's been stunning people since all of creation and been stunning angels before that The manifold wisdom of God should be made known to who? Just the world? No. What does your Bible say? Should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. Who's that? That's called angels and demons. You read the other passages in the Bible that talk about rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms? You guys have read that. It's all in the, what, spiritual warfare passages? You guys know what I'm talking about. What in the world are we going to share with the angels? They're smarter than us. They're better looking than us. They're stronger than us. They do everything better than us. What in the world could we possibly share with them? How in the world are we going to shock their world? Oh, we're not, but God is. You remember last week when I talked about the stunning nature of creation. You remember that? The angels gather around. Hey, guys, come here, come here, come here, come here. Watch this. Watch this. I'm going to make a bunch of little dirt bags. Watch, watch, watch. Whoa! And everyone went, oh my gosh, you're blowing my mind. Look at that little thing. That is so cool. What are you going to do? Play with it? Well, you know what? Actually, I'm going to put my, my life into it. You're going to what? I'm going to mark my image in it. What? What does that mean? Watch this. <laughs> Blows into it. All of a sudden, whoop, little Adam stands up, starts walking around. They're like, whoa! That's so cool. Can I have one? 
He's like, no, no, we're just going to make him down. He, no, get away. And so he's going to have him sit down there and then he makes a little girl one. And he's like, oh my gosh, look at them. They're making more. That's so creepy. And then they're making a bunch more. And he's got a bunch of dirt bags running around. Then all of a sudden, what? As they've been so stunned, all of a sudden he goes, they go, well, you're not going to touch it, are you? Well, yeah, as a matter of fact, I'm going inside. You're going, what? All of a sudden through the Holy Spirit poof, goes right inside. All these dirt bags boom, 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 inside their heart. Boom, they become up. All of a sudden, God himself, the infinite, steps into the finite 2,000 years ago when Jesus Christ comes to earth. And the angels are just astounded. They're blown away. You can't do that. That totally defies all laws I've ever seen. And then one more step. He says, hey, guys, quick, quick, come here, come here, come here. I got another thing to blow your mind. It's not just the Jews. Whoa! It's Gentiles, too. This is incredible. You're going all over the place. Do you understand that we walk around as stunning, amazing things of God's glory that the angels constantly look at us and they go, really? With that? I mean, do you understand? Because as much as they're better than us at everything, not one of them has the indwelling Holy Spirit of God. Why is it said then that we will judge the angels? Because we have something they don't have. You see, the gospel was something that they couldn't get their mind around. Oh, so God, when, when that whole rebellion thing went down with Lucifer and we chose sides, so that was it, right? There was no redemption plan for us. But, but you're going to do it for the dirtbags. Oh, I don't get it. What, have we not served you? Do you understand the difference? Do you understand that every time they look down at us, God is doing something extraordinary with such a little limited item. So when we begin to follow Christ, when we begin to do what he says, when we begin to alter the universe, they're amazed and we bring God glory. That's what we do. He said this. It says. According to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus, our Lord in him, verse 12, and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. That word in Greek for approach actually became a title of a job. The word means to help someone approach. It became a job title for the guy whose whole job was to hang out in the lobby. And when someone wanted to go see the king, he was your escort in to go see the king. Whenever you need to go see the king, he would be your ticket in. He'd go, all right, king's ready to see you, follow me. And he would walk you in. That is the word for approach. We may approach or have access to what? Access to God with freedom and confidence. That word freedom is a terrible translation. It actually means courage or boldness. We can walk in to the throne room of God with no fear, with absolute confidence, boldness, and courage. Why? Because perfect love casts out fear. Do you understand that when my daughters come home, let's say I'm hanging out at home and they come home from a play date and my wife opens the door. They're like little puppies straining at the door trying to get to dad. The minute that door hits open, boom, they throw it all the way open. And they go, dad, and they run as fast as they can into the house and listen for my voice. If I'm in the living room, they got to go turn the corner. If I'm upstairs, they got to go up the stairs and they fire at me with full speed and run and dive tackle me. Why? Because there is no fear of their daddy. They just want to be next to me. Because of what Jesus has done, we blow open the door 
And we run in our daddy at full speed. Because perfect love casts out fear. It says this. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are actually for your glory. Can you imagine how the Gentiles feel when their point man, their attorneys in jail? What if they kill that guy? Who's going to go before the Jews and tell them you're okay? What if your big, bad Jewish guy is not going to say that you're okay? What happens then? Paul said, hold on a second. God is not shut down. These chains don't bind me. God's got it completely solved. You're okay. And by the way, these chains look good on you. Everybody knows how serious God is about his love for the Gentiles. If he would allow me, as his chosen child, to be shackled for you, he must love you an awful lot. So don't be stressed out about the chains. They're nothing. We're just fine. He said, for this reason, I kneel before the Father. Why is that an odd phrase to an ancient Jew? Because Jews, ancient Jews don't pray kneeling down. They pray what? Standing up, up, arms raised, palms upward. This is how you pray. So what the heck are we talking about kneeling down for? What do you mean kneeling down? The only time you kneel down is when you're in desperation or intensity. There's the only times that you go prostrate, which is you kneel down on the floor and you bow your forehead to the ground. That's the only time that occurs. And Paul said, that's right. I'm so intent on you Gentiles no longer being afraid of our father. I want so badly for you to understand how much you are loved. I want you to know that God will go to all lengths to include you into the family. That I will pray with a deep, passionate intercession before the father. I kneel down before the father from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. And I pray. What does he pray? Verse 16. I pray that out of his glorious riches, and that word kata in Greek means in accordance with, meaning if he's super wealthy, it's a lot of money. If he's super resourceful, it's a lot of resources. Out of his glorious riches, that he may strengthen you. That word means to overcome opposition. That he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. You go, inner being, that's a weird, creepy new age phrase. What are you talking about? No, to the Greeks, your inner being was your reason, your conscience, and your will. He said, I pray that God would get down deep inside you, that you would get this locked down in your mind, that you would lock it in your heart, that you would know it, that you would believe it, that it would become a part of you, and therefore it will rise up from the inside outward, that he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That's where we get the phrase of and inviting Jesus into your heart. It's right there. The word to dwell means to permanently set up residence in. Not temporary. Permanently. In your heart. And I pray. He ain't done. And I pray that you being rooted. That's an organic phrase. And established, that's an architectural phrase, that being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the saints in fellowship to grasp, to hang on to, to get a hold of how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the full dominance, the word says, to the measure of all the fullness of God. 
Listen, why does he want him filled so much with love? Because of what I said earlier, that perfect love casts out fear. Listen, you, most of you know my story. You guys have heard it a million times. It's boring now. But as a guy who has spent his whole life with anxiety disorder, I have wasted a huge amount of my joy and my energy worrying about things that don't matter. They're not even real. They don't exist. They're not going to occur. There's nothing I should be worried about. And my mind is split in half. Half of me is super logical that knows it's stupid. And yet there goes all my energy down the drain. Paul said, I will pray. I will intercede for you that you will not allow fear to steal your joy when it comes to Jesus. I will back you up that you might get it how much you are loved. Now, verse 20, to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to the power that is work within us, to him be glory in the church and glory in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. So be it. This message is to remind you how much you're loved as non-Jews. And I know we don't get that. But I hope we get it more now. Because there was a time when you had no access. But now you do. And not just any access. Not access to becoming a second class convert. But now full family membership. That's extraordinary. Will you together with all of us help each other to grasp how high how deep how wide how long is the love of Jesus that's what we're doing here amen let's close in prayer heavenly father thank you for today thank you lord for a refreshment of how much you love us about what you have done and how phase One was all about the Jews. Phase two was bringing in the Gentiles. And Lord, you got a phase three where you're re-engaging in an extraordinary way with your children, the Jewish people. That they've always been, and you've shared so many years to let them know how precious they are to you. And that you're not done with them. That you love them just as much as always. Father, as they enter into phase three, may we be a part of the way that you love on them. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.